0: Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Father, for the real-life examples that you've brought into our midst today of what it means to follow in faith. Each of us, Father, have that calling. Each of us have that obligation to respond to you, the grace that you've given us with a life of obedience. But yet, Father, you know from your, from your word we can see that it's not always easy to do the right thing, that our flesh pulls on us and the enemy tempts us and life intrudes upon us. How nice it is, Father, to be reminded that there are those in the body of Christ who set aside all of those distractions to live a life of obedience and service to you. And yet, Father, where we are in our station of life and whatever walk you've given us is still that opportunity as well to serve you and to preach the gospel by our lives and our words, to walk in obedience. I pray, Lord, you would show us through the examples of Hebrews this morning that these are decisions that lie within our grasp as well, and that we also, Father, can be in that hall of faith, as it were, that by our actions we can reflect our testimony as well. Inspire us, Father, by your word. Encourage us. Give us courage to follow what we learn. Father, give us the strength to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you just heard me say, we are in the Hall of Faith, chapter 11 of Hebrews, back where we left off from last week. Uh, Last week we did the first six verses of this chapter. And in those six verses, the writer gave us an introduction to the nature, the purpose, and the value of faith in the life of the believer. Faith is a perspective on the future, one that is rooted in reality. It's not speculation. It's not fantasy. It stems from a truth and it's one that causes us to trust that the things God has promised will come to pass. By our faith lived out, we give testimony to the world according to our belief in these future events. And then we started to look at examples that this chapter is so known for, examples of saints who have gone before us in life, and from what they did in faith, we can begin to learn what faith looks like when it's lived out. And we can see there... Confidence in God's promises reflected in their choices and their in, in their decisions. We can appreciate that as their testimony. And we understand that in many cases, if not in all cases, faith lived out will lead to persecution and even martyrdom. But we learn to accept that possibility, maybe that inevitability, because the hope and the confidence of the saint lies not in earthly rewards, but in eternal rewards. Now, the main feature of this chapter, of chapter 11 is, as I said, this list of saints who exemplify faith in action, and we're studying them one at a time, beginning to learn as much as we can about what happened in each of their lives individually, learning the lessons that they're intended to teach. Throughout this chapter, the writer is using these examples to bolster the faith of wavering believers. When you find how others have approached similar situations, you get greater confidence to do the right thing. There's a great example of that from a man who ministered most of his life in China, Hudson Taylor, a man who's very well known for that. And there's a lot of stories about his life. Some of them I wonder if they're true and may just be an embellished legend. But in any case, uh, there's one story of how Hudson Taylor made the voyage on a sailing vessel over to China. And as he neared the channel between the southern Malay Peninsula and the island of Sumatra as he's headed that way, There comes a point in that trip where the winds are not favorable and the missionary was inside the ship somewhere and he had an urgent knock on his stateroom door and he opened it and there was the captain of the ship. And the captain said, Mr. Taylor, we have no wind. We are drifting. And there's an island that we're headed toward where people are heathen. And I fear they may be cannibals as well. And Taylor's response to all of this was, well, what do you want me to do about this? And the captain said, well, I understand that you are a man of God. You believe in God. Perhaps you would pray for us to have wind so that we can escape this fate. All right, he says, I will. But he made a condition. He said, you must first set the sail. And the captain's response was, well, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. He said, there's not even the slightest breeze. Why would I have my men go to the trouble of raising the mainsail when there's no reason for that yet? Let's wait for the wind. And he said, besides, the sailors will think I'm crazy if I ask them to do this, but Taylor insisted. He said, I will not pray unless you take an action consistent with faith in God's ability to respond. And finally, the captain relented, agreed and raised the sail. Forty-five minutes later, the captain's back at the door knocking again. And the missionary is still in the room on his knees praying, as he has been for the last 45 minutes. And the captain says, you can stop praying now. He says, we have more wind than we know what to deal with. We're in danger of a gale. And again, I'm not sure how much of that story is true, but it sounds like Taylor... If you know his life at all, he was a man who lived out confidence in the promises of things unseen in God's ability to work according to his will. That's essentially what this chapter is all about. Inspiring stories from the Old Testament, people that you can go read about in the Bible who lived in a way that was consistent with faith. The confidence in things that are unseen, living as if they were true already because they are in God's word. We'll look at each of these. Remember, there's a pattern here as we study through these people. Each of them will show evidence of faith in their life. Many, if not all of them, will show evidence of persecution as a result of living in faith. And yet, they don't let the threat of persecution or of trial cause them to waver at all. They don't shrink back to destruction, as the writer said in chapter 10. They persevere on, even unto death in in some cases. Why? Because that's what faith requires. That's what faith looks like. Remember, faith being by itself is useless according to James. So our next example, following chronologically and where we left off, verse 7, is that of Noah. Verse 7, the writer says, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Now we all remember the story of Noah, I mean, even if you weren't a believer, you probably know who I'm talking about right from the start, right? He's a a man that's well known for what he did. He received God's grace, we're told in chapter six of Genesis. He had a call then to go build this gigantic boat and to do so because there was the expectation of a coming flood. And as God revealed his plan to Noah, he offered Noah essentially a promise. The promise being that if Noah were to build the boat that he's being asked to build, that it would be sufficient to save him and his household from this coming judgment. That was the promise. And in verse 7 of chapter 11, the writer says, Noah was warned, now notice, about things unseen. About things unseen. What was unseen in Noah's day? Well, the Bible testifies in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, that the earth did not know rain in Noah's day, in those days leading up to the flood. In the days prior to the flood, God's plan for replenishing the water supply on the earth involved a mist that we're told settled or rose from the earth on a regular basis. So rain wasn't required. We can't understand that. We don't have any appreciation for that because we've lived in a post endilic world, a world after the flood. It's always been our experience that rain is the source for life, for water. But in Noah's day, it had never rained. So now imagine what Noah heard from that perspective. He had been told to avoid the consequences of a worldwide flood, but that is an experience that the world had never seen. I sometimes wonder if he even understood what the word meant. Would the word have had a lot of meaning? Like in the garden when God told Adam that in the day that he eats of it, surely he would die, and yet death hadn't come upon the world as yet. Did he even know what dying means? But in both cases, it's irrelevant because the instructions were utterly clear. Do not eat is not ambiguous. And in Noah's day, the concept of building the ark according to God's direction was clear enough as well. Although the idea of a gigantic boat built inland in a world that had never seen a flood, no, that is bizarre. That's an unseen future experience. And God spoke to Noah with that expectation, with those words promising to bring about an event that Noah could not fully appreciate or even understand, and then put it to a test. You have to do what I'm asking to avoid what's coming, to begin a construction project of unimaginable proportions. Now, what was Noah's response to that? Well, obviously, he's in the Hall of Faith. So his response was an act of faith. The writer says, in reverence... He went about his work reverence here in Greek. Literally, it means respect or sober, cautious behavior, reverent behavior. To put it simply, Noah took God's word seriously. He believed that what God said would happen was going to happen. Now, how do we know that he took it seriously? Well, because he spent the better part of 100 years building an enormous ship. Noah is arguably, and in my opinion, the Bible's greatest example of sustained faith in action. Sustained faith. There is no record in the story of Genesis of God speaking to Noah again during those years of construction until the very end when he's preparing to actually bring the animals into the ark. So do you wonder if over the span of a century, if Noah ever had a day of doubt, do you think in the middle of this project, he ever wondered what he was thinking? Can you imagine the kinds of discouragement that comes upon somebody in the middle of something so sustained? You're doing something that is crazy. From a world's perspective right building a boat in the middle of nowhere for a flood that no one knows what that even means i wonder how many times he said to himself did i hear this right did i miss something boat right he said boat didn't you hear boat i'm giving up my whole life here to build a boat i don't even like water why am i doing this you know you can hear yourself in his position can't you But nevertheless, Noah persevered. And I have to believe, and the scriptures allude to this, that he was also persecuted throughout that process. And you would just expect it. Kindergartners walking by are going to mock him. It doesn't even require an adult. I mean, it's just natural, right? Look at the crazy man down the road building a boat. You have to believe that he was building something no one could have possibly found useful. Not in his day, certainly. The equivalent of a wooden Titanic in a landlocked location. But faith, friends, will cause you and I to live in ways that the world considers crazy. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if unbelievers who know you well don't think some part of your life is crazy, then one of two things has got to be true. Either they don't know you that well or you're not living enough like your faith requires. Because if you can look and fit in with the natural world with no sense that you're off in some crazy place, then you're living like the world by definition. Our faith has to change this or what's its point? It's our testimony. You notice that but what the writer says, is that, that by his life he condemned the world. Now, you have to remember that it was God's pronouncement of the flood that brought the condemnation. It was not Noah. Noah didn't say, wake up one day and decide the world needed to be flooded. That was God's decision. What the writer is saying is God's word of condemnation became a testimony to the world through Noah's obedience. Noah became a megaphone to the world about what God was planning to do. He could only do that, though, if he obeyed. The boat was the testimony in that respect. And friends, our walk of faith in obedience is a testimony, as you already know. And in time, your faith will be rewarded. Notice the writer here returns at the end of verse 7, at the end of this verse. He returns again to the concept of an inheritance. Did you notice that? An eternal reward? He says, by Noah's life of works, according to his faith, he becomes an heir. Now, what's an heir again? An heir is the one who receives part of an inheritance, right? We've said this before. The writer defined faith earlier in the chapter this way, that you have to believe that God is and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. The concept of reward, of eternal rewards for the believer, is built in to a life of faith. It can't be otherwise. Friends, I know you can have an honest intention. You can have that that altruistic desire to do the right thing, as inspired by the Spirit. We all know that feeling. We can all say, you know, I should give to that missionary. And there's that altruistic moment. What will actually cause you to follow through? And to do it in a sustained way, like the story of Noah. The Bible says it's your appreciation that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's how the sustainment comes. That's what faith leads to. It's not just the start. It's the finish. And the finish of a life of faith is the sustainment that comes because you know that sustainment brings reward. It's not a selfish desire. God has constructed this for your benefit because it's for our own benefit that we be obedient and that we follow through and that we do what God calls us to do because he is just. Our faith saves us, not our works, but our works have merit. I wonder if Noah's inheritance will be one of the best in the kingdom. You know what I really wonder? I wonder if his inheritance will be on the coast. That's Noah's example. Noah's example is sustained obedience with an expectation of eternal reward. Verses 8 through 10. Now we move to a section that focuses primarily on the patriarchs, starting with Abraham and his wife Sarah today. We'll look at the other patriarchs next time. Verse 8. We hear by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, Abraham's story is at least as well known as Noah's, certainly for a Bible student. So again, the history of who he is is not something we have to go through to any great degree, but There are elements of his story that are important to remember for the sake of what this writer is trying to teach us about his example of faith. And it starts with who he was in the beginning. Do you remember Abraham's beginnings? He was a pagan worshiper living in Mesopotamia in a prosperous family in a city called Ur that historically was a large city. He was prosperous. He was a business person or he was a landowner or he was something. He was something in a big city. But while he was there, he was called out of the blue by God to enter into a life of faith and to move from where he lived, from from his family, from his lifestyle, from everything he knew. God said, if you'll do this, if you'll leave behind everything, you know, including your family, he says, I will bless you with a great inheritance in a land that I will show you. God doesn't even tell him where he's going. And we know now that that land is the promised land of Israel was originally Canaan, of course. In fact, that That land, if you look at the boundaries defined in Scripture, it's much larger than Israel has ever seen. It goes from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Euphrates, modern-day Iraq, and it goes from Damascus to the brook of Egypt. So it's a span of land that Israel has yet to have. In fact, that Abraham and his descendants have yet to have. But that's what God promised. And as God revealed this to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, he told him he would have an inheritance, but he didn't tell him where it was. I really find that to be maybe the most fascinating detail in Abraham's story, the very first one. The idea that he knew what he had, think of like Monty Hall and, and let's make a deal. He knew what was behind door number one and a God that he had never known before calls him out of the blue and says, I've got something better. It's behind door number two, but you have to choose it before I open the door. And as the writer reminds us in verse nine, he had to walk in faith, without even an understanding of where he was going. He had to make that choice. What was he going to make his choice based on? Really, the only thing he had to go on was the word of God, that word of revelation that God provided. Would he believe in the promises of God? See, God was promising him an inheritance, and implicit in that promise is something better than what you have. God didn't show up and say, would you trade me something good for something less? I mean, that much is clear. Now, it would be something better, but he would have to trade what he had. He would have to walk away from it. Now, I want you to imagine you are an unbeliever, for that's who Abraham was at the start of this. You're an unbeliever, which means you have no prior experience trusting or following the living God. And we were all there at one point. It's really easy to forget that and to be thinking about this problem from the standpoint of a Christian. You know, you've walked with the Lord to a certain extent. You know the Word. You've come to understand Him to a degree. And now you're wondering, well, what if God showed up tomorrow and asked me to leave everything I know? But friends, it's harder than that. Imagine that same dilemma when you have no experience with God. You've not had the training, the teaching, the culture, and so on. Now put yourself in that situation. And you hear God telling you, leave behind your home. Now listen, He doesn't say sell it. He says walk away from it. You got a home you like right now with a certain investment in it? Would you walk away from it if God called you to? Then on top of that, leave behind your family because your family doesn't want to go with you. You're crazy. Where are you going? I can't tell you. Why not? I don't know. Come with me. What are you, nuts? Leave behind your family roots. And in our case, get in your car, drive to the airport, get on a plane, and go to some other country and never come back. Would you do that? He says, if you will do that to Abraham, if you will do that, you will receive a great inheritance. Now, that was the test he put in front of Abraham, actually at the time, Abram. And Abram, as we understand, as we know, he responded in faith. But now, friends, for Abram, that was just the first of a series of tests God put in front of him. When Abraham arrived in the promised land in Canaan, the Lord then revealed to Abram that this is the land. There's that moment in Genesis when Abraham is told to look around. Look, this is what you're going to have as your inheritance. Now, I have to imagine he wasn't looking at anything that was tremendously inspiring at that point. It's a lot of desert. And he couldn't even see the boundaries of it. He only could see a certain distance. He said, this will be yours. But then God added this interesting little twist. It's going to be yours, but not in your lifetime. It's going to be your descendants. You won't have it in this first lifetime. Instead, you will have an heir, and that heir will be the first of many descendants. They will have this land. Ultimately, you will receive this land in full in the kingdom. Now, if that's the promise you've received, and if you believe it, what do you do with it? Well, you not only sacrifice the comfort and the security of what you had in faith and in waiting for God's promises, but you then live the rest of your earthly lifetime with no prospect of seeing the benefits Of that act of faith. In verse 9, you live as an alien and a wanderer in the very land that you've been promised. You have to remember, Abraham did not grow up a nomad in Ur. There's a misconception, at least in some places I've been, where we think that that's what he wanted. He was the typical nomad, and all he did was he shifted from being a nomad in Mesopotamia to being a nomad in Canaan. That's completely not what the scripture says. Over here, he's a prosperous, city dwelling, normal guy. And here he comes to this part of the world and God says, "Okay, now that you're here, this isn't your land. This is going to be yours in the future. And so Abraham's response is, I've got to live in a foreign land that's not my land. I guess I'll just live in tents. I'm just going to be permanently wandering and waiting, living as a nomad, which is totally not my thing. But I'm going to do it because that's the best way I can show the world and you and everyone that I have no interest in this land because it's not mine. He lived as a nomad, he had no previous experience, as far as we can tell, living in tents, and yet he adopted that unfamiliar lifestyle for all the days he lived in Canaan, choosing to live, he says, as an alien, as if in a foreign land. Would you do that? Somewhere in this world is your is your kingdom to come, but you can't get it yet. How do you live now so as to communicate to the world your faith in that promise? Does it require you live in a tent? No. But, on the other hand, how much investment do you make in this world? Enough to do what God's called you to do, but why any more? What would be the value in sinking time, effort, sweat, tears, and money into a world that you know is not your world, that you're supposed to live as if is not your world? The whole idea of what Christ said when he said, don't store up treasure on earth, store it up in heaven, isn't simply about what you accumulate. It's about what your heart go to in this world. It's just not what matters. Why did he live as a nomad? Because he believed what God told him when he said, your inheritance will not be yours in your lifetime. So he looked around Canaan and he said, you know, this isn't mine yet, but it will be one day. Meanwhile, I'm a temporary dweller. Notice in verse 10, the writer says Abraham was looking for a different city. And the word in Greek for looking, it literally means to expect to receive in the future, to expect to receive in the future. So Abraham could see all these cities. He could see Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar and Shechem and Beersheba. He could see all these cities and he looks at them all and he says, you know what? None of these are my cities. They're earthly cities. They're going to go away one day. They're built by ungodly pagans. So he continues to live, expecting the one that comes from heaven. Notice who builds the city he's waiting on, the one built by God, the kingdom to come. Now, friends, let's do a little contrast between Abraham and Noah for a moment. Abraham's example of faith is so powerful because it was so absolute, so all encompassing, so sacrificial. And all faith is to a degree. Everyone experiences those elements to a degree. But if we could say that Noah's example of faith was of a sustained obedience, then I think we can also say Abraham's example of faith was of dramatic, life-changing moments, of leaving Ur, of sacrificing his son, of choosing to live as a nomad. Those are moments. Yes, they had consequences for years after, but those were moments. He had a yes-no, fork-in-the-road, Robert Frost moment. And faith brings those moments, not the least of all, the one that brings us into the family of God to begin with. And I'm sure Noah had moments like that along the way as well. But Noah's story pans out much more as a man who heard and just stayed the course for a hundred years. The world will mock both forms of faith. And in general, God will require Both forms of faith to varying degrees with Abraham. It was become a new person. Take on a new name, a new home, a new lifestyle, a new outlook, a new family. With Noah, it was become a source of mocking in expectation for the craziest thing to ever happen and do it for a long, long time. You'll find examples in your own life in which both things are required. And in both cases, the world is going to press in from all sides trying to change what your thinking is. In Abraham's case, it was those who would corrupt him and tempt him to take their largesse or to come into their cities or to cooperate with their people and to assume a part of their lifestyle. And in all cases, Abraham said, no, 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 I am who I am and I refuse to join who you are. And of course, we don't get a lot of detail, but we can assume in Noah's case, there was every day some temptation to put the hammer down and to get back to real life, quote, real life. Lastly, for the day, look at example of Sarah, which is really the example of Abraham matched in his wife, but in an intriguing way. Verse 11 through 12, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful, who had promised, therefore, There was born even of one man and him as good as dead as that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Sarah is cited here by this writer as a fellow heir with Abraham because she too demonstrated faith in God. But her example is a bit confusing. If you know the story of Sarah that the writer is referring to here out of Genesis 18, you might question whether her behavior is truly an example of faith or not. And what we're talking here about is the time when Abraham and Sarah had yet to have a child. They were both very advanced in age, no prospect of natural children at this point. And there comes a point in Genesis where God is about to fulfill his promise to Abraham to have a child. Now, he told Abraham 24 years earlier that they would have a child. Now, in the 24 years that have come since then, if you know the story, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar decided they would try to get it done some other way, and that didn't work out so well. And then we get to the point where God's ready to finally bring the child of promise, Isaac, the natural-born child of Sarah. And this is what we hear in chapter 18, verses 9 through 15. God comes in the form of of a visitor with two angels also with him in the form of men. And the three of them come to a- Abraham's tent and they share a meal. And this is the moment when God is going to reveal to Abraham it's time for the promise to be fulfilled. Verse eight, verse nine. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, well, there in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, Sarah was past childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is it anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. How is it that in faith she conceived when it's apparent she doesn't seem to have a lot of faith? Or at least that's the impression we're left with. But notice how it started. It started in that conversation with the Lord asking Abraham, where is your wife, Sarah? He asks about her and he names her by name. And these are supposedly three strangers who wandered in who wouldn't have had any reason to know of her name. Why did he have that moment? Why was there that moment in Genesis 18 where the Lord asks about Sarah that way? In patriarchal culture, by the way, no one would have cared where the woman was. No one would have asked. She wouldn't have been a topic of conversation. It wouldn't have been a meaningful moment. But the Lord goes out of his way to ask about her. He knew that when he mentions her name, what's going to happen? The tent's right next to where they're sitting. What do you think was going to happen inside that tent when the stranger mentions Sarah's name? Wouldn't you expect Sarah to go, Sarah, how do you know my name? And get closer to the door and start listening? That's exactly right. That's exactly what he wanted. The whole point was to get Sarah's attention and to bring her into a conversation she probably wouldn't have been much interested in otherwise. And then as she's listening, then he gives the promise. Sarah's going to have a baby. And then, of course, she laughs to herself in the tent because it's a crazy notion. And frankly, it is from an earthly point of view. It's utterly bizarre. And at that point, of course, her laugh is called out and she denies it because she's afraid. Wouldn't you have been afraid? The guy can know my inner thoughts. This is terrifying. And she asks incredulously, shall I, being so old, bear a child? And the Lord rebukes her. So now how can the writer of Hebrews use her as an example of faith? Well, let's look more closely at what the writer says in verse 11. He says, by faith she received the ability to conceive. Received. And in Greek, the writer literally said, by faith Sarah gained the power to receive or collect. That's what it says in Greek. It's euphemistic. It means to collect Literally, the seed of Abraham. All right. By faith, she received that ability. She was granted the power by God, obviously, to receive. So we could say that Sarah's ability to conceive awaited her faith in God's promise. It awaited the faith that was required. And though she clearly lacked confidence in his word at the time of this visitation, based on the writer's words here in Hebrews, we must conclude that within a few months after this visit, Sarah reached the point where she trusted in the word of God. And by that trust, she then received the ability to conceive. By her faith, she considered him faithful who had promised, the writer says. What are we learning from this example? Well, Sarah's example is an encouraging one, I think, for any believer who has struggled from time to time in accepting the truth of God's promises and in adopting a lifestyle that reflects that faith. And I think pretty much that's all of us at some point, isn't it? We look up to people whose lives seem to just emanate faith, 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 and we think, well, that's them, but I don't know how I get there. I don't even understand how you get there. Well, like the old saying, you don't eat an elephant all at once, you eat it one bite at a time. Right. It's exposure to the word of God. It's exposure to the promises and the faithfulness of God. And it's being immersed in that world with others like you around you that move you in steps there. That's what God is good to do. Remember, Sarah had traveled with her husband when he received his call back in Canaan uh, to go to Canaan. Right. She had already made huge sacrifices. She was dragged along with him in that whole journey. She had no doubt heard her husband explaining the reasoning for why they were making this dramatic shift in the lifestyle. And I'm pretty sure she struggled with the explanation. Well, because God told me to go to a place He will show me. Who is this God? How do you know we trust Him? How do you know He's taking you to somewhere we should go? And yet, on the day the Lord visited her in the tent, it's clear that though she had seen all of those things and experienced all those things, she wasn't there yet. She's still struggling with faith in her own heart. Faith, Whether faith in the soteriological sense, that is, in the salvation sense, or whether it was just faith in the obedience sense, one way or the other, she's just not there yet. Nevertheless, We're told now in Hebrews that the end of the story was that by faith she conceived somewhere between Genesis 18 and the arrival of Isaac. This woman's heart gained the ability to understand the truth and and rely on the truth of God's promises. Her example reminds us that we, too, can expect the Lord's patience as we strive to believe and live in our faith. Remember the disciples? They were confronted at one point in the Gospels where Jesus was trying to get them to understand the power of faith. And they say, increase our faith. You know, this moment. The context is when he's telling them if your brother sins, forgive him. If he sins seven times, forgive him 70 times seven. And when they hear that, they go, increase our faith. How are we going to forgive anybody that much? That's crazy talk. You know what he says to that? Jesus says, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. He's telling them that faith is not measured in quantity. It's measured in quality. Even the smallest amount of faith is sufficient to please God. What's important is how it directs your life. Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith, and therefore he gives everyone a measure of faith, and it's my opinion out of Scripture that he gives everyone exactly the same measure, because there is no measure. It's not quantifiable. Like Sarah, He is patient to bring us along in our walk. But what distinguishes one believer from another in your walk? It's not in the amount of faith you have. It's in our willingness to live up to it or live out in that faith that is different. The one who has faith in God's plan to move a mulberry tree into the ocean can speak of those future events with absolute certainty. With just a little bit of faith, that faith in just that one idea is enough because it's rooted not in your strength, but in God's. Noah, Abraham, Sarah were all people who heard the word of God. They all faced decisions of whether to believe. They all were uh, facing a life of sustained living according to that faith. And they all conformed their lives to the promises of God. Noah, in a moment, but toiled diligently for a century. Abraham received promises over many years, but each came at critical moments. And Sarah heard God, saw God, experienced God over a period of time. Ultimately, she reached a point of faith and obedience. So whether you are Noah or Abraham or Sarah, you need to understand and recognize that God is the one revealed in scriptures as the one who rewards those who seek him. Next week, we continue in the patriarchs and further into the hall of faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, sustain our faith. Give us courage in moments of testing or trial. And build us up, Father, so that we may ultimately receive the inheritance that you have appointed to us. Let our life be a testimony. Let us not shrink back. And guide us by these examples in those moments when we need to be strengthened. I pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.